Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Nefesh podcast. This is episode 20. Thank you for listening. I'm excited that you are with us in this episode. You know, this is the start um, of the Christmas season, and uh, it's the countdown. If you've got uh, a particular TV network, maybe whether you hear the United States or around the world, you may have like a countdown, 25 days of Christmas, uh, on Thanksgiving, they had, uh, one particular television network had just the movie Elf playing all day. And that is a movie I could watch again and again and again. My niece, one of my nieces said to me, auntie, is this, is this like your happy movie? Or is this like your, uh, your movie that you like to watch, uh, like to make you happy or something? Cause she said, you just always watching it. I love Elf. It's one of my favorite movies, but we've entered the, the holiday Christmas season. And, you know, in this, in this episode, I want to talk about the idea of simplicity and simplicity and the soul. And no, this is not a, a talk, uh, on, on all the bad aspects of Christmas and all of the things that you should and shouldn't do and not meant to be condemnation or convicting about, you know, the money that you spend or we spend or any of that type of stuff. Um, it, and it feels like Christmas really is, is anything but simple. I mean, in some ways it is so simple, the essence of Christmas and the idea of God, Emmanuel, God with us coming to earth to, to, to share with us, to die for us, to bring us to a reconciled relationship with God, that that idea, that that is both uh, amazing and complex, and yet it's the, uh, the simplicity of its message is powerful. And yet Christmas, especially as we celebrate it today, can get very complex. And I know in my family, we've gone through various iterations of what we do in our traditions and um, trying to make it so that it's not so frenzied and so, so, you know, difficult and everybody's rushing everywhere to do things or buying for everybody. And because there is a desire, and I think at the heart of uh, probably of, of a lot of people, there is a desire to make sure that the message of Christmas doesn't get lost in in all of the stuff that we can get lost in, all of the stuff that we can get busy with. There is so much about how Christmas has morphed into a tradition that is truly beautiful. Whether it is the the trees, I I, I love Christmas trees. I I have to confess that I I kept up um, one of my uh, my little Christmas tree plastic. Christmas trees. I kept it up during the whole pandemic because it was just uh, partly because I'm lazy when it comes to decorating, I will admit. But the other part is just, I, I just wanted it as a bright light in the midst of, you know, difficult times. And so uh, I love that. I, I, I love Christmas trees. I love Christmas m- music. I love uh, Christmas mu- movies. I have, you know, for those of you who listen to Christmas music and you do it in July or you do it all year round, uh, the traditions that we have developed, some of them are just so, so cool, so, so rich in meaning. Christmas music, the, the, uh, the various songs that that we have written over the years, over the centuries, to celebrate just such a beautiful thing 
God, Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, God truly one of us and loving us and discipling us and drawing us to himself and then dying for the sake of humanity as we celebrate at Easter. I mean, this is a, a beautiful idea and it's so complex and so hard to understand. And, and over the years, the celebrations, the, 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 the desire to, to keep Christ in Christmas, all of that uh, is good and is so powerful. And yet there is always the tug, right? The tug of materialism, the tug of, of, hey, don't you really need this for yourself? Or wouldn't your spouse or your loved one really like this, whatever uh, it is, and that costs X amount? And maybe you were out there duking it out with others on Black Friday and, and uh, tearing things away from other people and then repenting for it later. Uh, maybe you were one of those, or maybe you were doing it at home as I was doing, you know, not duking it out with anybody, uh, but getting stuff online and noticing the sales. There's, there's always the tug. And, um, you know, around the world, even though in the West and particularly um, in the, the Northwest or the Western part of the world, we have so much. And uh, the idea of being in want or being, being wanting for anything or being in need is, is a bit harder for us to understand because in general, we tend to have more than the rest of the world. And the, the struggle, we all get caught up in it. We all do, whether it's to, to look a certain way, have a certain thing, have a certain identity. And even more so now, it feels like with technology, Everybody can see what you're doing on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever uh, platform there is, Twitter or YouTube. Um, they, they can see your lifestyle, your cars, your, the way you dress, the way you interact. It's, it's hard to get away from the pressures of, of our world, our world that has brought us so much, the technology that has brought us to such an incredibly advanced place that also can trap us in the, the desires for things and the desires for, uh, for quick fixes or quick uh, ways to satisfy, uh, the, whatever it might be that we have, or we are a adrenaline junkies going from one thing to the next, or we are trying to fill the sadness in our lives, or we're trying to stop ourselves from worrying or thinking about difficult things. We all, as humans, we all attempt to survive and, and find peace and happiness and, and joy in various parts of life. And yet, there is a, there is a simplicity in the message of Jesus, there is a simplicity in what it means to follow Jesus. There is a simplicity in, in the way that Jesus came, humbly, lowly, born in, born in, as the, as the, the Bible says, born in a manger, which is a feeding trough for animals. Now there's, 
scholars go back and forth as to whether or not, um, you know, where Jesus was born would, would have actually been part of the house. Uh, because back then you didn't necessarily have all of these separate areas like you know two different houses on a an acre of land one one barn for the animals and one house for the people that very easily very possibly Jesus could have been born in a house uh, but that the only thing available to put this tiny baby in was was a little feeding trough animals would come in and out of of the house uh, at times in various situations they may have lived in with with other humans scholars debate that I, I think the fact that he is born in a manger though specifically tells us something that that there wasn't he wasn't born at home in a crib and a nice room that his parents set up for him with the wallpaper or the the paint blue and the the little mobile that hangs above him wasn't twirling i mean they were on their way to pay their taxes and it's as they're on this journey they give birth and the first persons uh other than the wise men the first person that people that hear the news are shepherds and again the debate over whether these were like lowly lowly this was the lowliest of of trades um, may not have been, but they were certainly not kings. Now, you've got wise men who do come along at some point, but the shepherds are out in their field, and the angels reveal to them that Jesus is born. The really common men, the average person, they were the ones to hear about Jesus' message. Jesus spent the first years of his life just probably going to Hebrew school, learning scripture, spending time in the temple for sure, um, but being in what, quote, a normal, unquote, person. And then he begins his ministry, and it's, his life was so average that people really didn't even, they were surprised when he got up and he starts to heal and speak and teach. He was so ordinary that Judas has to go and kiss him on the cheek when he betrays him in front of uh, the, the temple soldiers who come to arrest him. He's so common, he blends in. They don't know, they don't know who he is. Judas has to go pick him out of the crowd and kiss him on the cheek and at his Jesus' arrest. And that's when they go and they take him away. He in many ways embodied this simplicity. He doesn't seem to have had a lot of money. He didn't yeah, he was hanging with some pretty wealthy people, uh, definitely some some wealthy women who were supporting him. But he, in all of his actions, his words, his deeds, they were powerful but, but simple. His life reflected a, a type of simplicity that was full and rich and deep in meaning, but, but didn't, didn't by its ostentatious nature attract attention. It wasn't as if he was... Um, 
you know, causing a stir by, by his personality so much as his love that was coming off of him and everything that he said and that he did. And these verses in Matthew 11 where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, which seems to be a reference to Jesus' teaching. This was, the yoke would reference the rabbi's teaching. Take my yoke, my teaching upon you, and learn from me, he says, for I am gentle and humble in spirit. For my yoke, he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now he was comparing it to the, the religious laws that the Pharisees had built up over the past few centuries since they had been brought back from exile, come back to Jerusalem. The Pharisees, in an, in an attempt to remain holy, built up so many laws that the laws themselves became their salvation. Their laws themselves and their actions and their, their uh, attempt to keep those laws were the things that, that held them, but then held them in bondage and it became a burden upon people. And Jesus offers them another way. He says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And definitely in comparison to the religious leaders it was. It was a whole lot more simple. <laughs> the simplicity is take up your cross, which means die to yourself, deny yourself and follow me. Yet yeah, that is definitely simpler than uh, keeping all of these laws, 600, maybe a thousand by that time, definitely simpler, more simple, but not necessarily painless. All of the law and the prophets, Jesus says, can be summed up into two commands, right? He affirms this when the religious leader says this, that it's to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's definitely easier to memorize than 600, 1,000 laws. I can memorize those two concepts, and I can memorize this idea of dying to myself. It's a whole lot easier of a concept to understand and to follow. It's harder in many ways, and yet it is it is easier. We often overcomplicate things. I have a good friend who has told me at various times in my life, don't overthink. Don't overthink. You're overthinking. Don't overthink. Uh, I think she can sense when my brain starts to uh, overheat from all of the thoughts going on there. And we, we can do that. We can overthink, we can overanalyze, we can worry, we can 
uh, we can go to the extremes. God, where where are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing there? What is what is your will for my life? What should I do? God, why aren't you doing this? Why is this happening? What do we do here? Uh, we can complicate our spiritual formation. We can engage in laws and rituals. We can detail our lives. Those of you who are so organized, if anything messes up your organization, you nearly melt down or you have a, a tantrum like a two-year-old. Um, those of you who are a lot more loose and free, um, you may not overthink some things, but you also at the same time don't want anybody to make you get organized or do something that you don't want to do. Um, but we, I think we just, we, we can definitely make things so much bigger than they are and, and overcomplicate. And there is that part of simplicity and this easy yoke that Jesus calls us into, uh, to not overthink necessarily, to not, to not try to manage or control all aspects of our lives. But the easy yoke also is a reflection of the simplicity of the surrender. And surrendering to a different way of, of seeing the world. And Jesus he talks about a kingdom mentality or this, this kingdom of God concept that is throughout the Gospels. And it's as if this kingdom of God, this kingdom of God perspective is vastly, drastically different than our earthly perspective. It's as if Jesus has to reorient our way of looking at things everything from life itself to our life in order for us to understand that truly following him and surrendering to him is yes easier than the complications that we make of our own lives particularly in our Western culture. And those of you who aren't in a Western culture, you are feeling the pressure or the desire to be like the Western cultures because the Western cultures rule the world. They, they control and dictate everything or, or have at times. And at times have set the standard for what is good and the things that we should be reaching for and desiring. And the struggle to, to come back to a simple, easy yoke way of understanding God, our life, and, and the purposes for which he has called us. The challenge in coming back to that is that, again, we are surrounded by all that we have and all of the pressures to have what we don't have, to achieve what we haven't achieved yet, to become who we haven't become yet, to get more and more and more and to do more and to be more, have more. And yet, 
I think Christmas offers us this opportunity to pull back to a more simple way of viewing life, the world, our purpose in it, to reflect upon the things that really do matter and to let go of the things that really don't. If I can, if I may, uh, use one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life, as an example. As George Bailey, if you've never seen it, you, you really need to see it. As George Bailey, in his struggle for just desiring to do something more with his life, his high ambitions come crashing down to reality as he struggles through life and marriage and family and through a particularly difficult time in the Christmas holiday, wonders if life would be better off without him in it. And he struggles to understand the, the beauty of what really matters. Not all the money in the world, not all the prestige, not all the power. It is just to, to love others, to be loved, to love others the relationships that he has, that that is what is most important. And it rings of what Jesus tells us in scripture, that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And, and that is the law. That is Jesus's law. That is his teaching. That is his yoke. It's easy. Just deny yourself. Surrender. Take up your cross. And follow me. Well, several years ago, Richard Foster, who, um, uh, along with many others, uh, really helped to engage and re-engage in a conversation regarding spiritual formation and spiritual formation has been a part of church history from the time of Jesus. Jesus's discipleship, the way of discipleship is spiritual formation, following in his footsteps and doing the things that he did, becoming like him. Well, in the 20th century and 21st century, people like Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, um, Frank Laubach, uh, and many others uh, have have reminded us and brought us back to our, our uh, awareness, the need for true discipleship, true practices that, that help us to become more like Christ, that help us in that following, that help us in the denying of ourselves and following Jesus. And in his book, Celebration of Discipline, Richard Foster, he details one of the spiritual disciplines and he talks about, he spends a, a chapter talking about the discipline of simplicity. It's one that uh, I really, I really come back to as, as often as possible. I in no way in, am, am in no way perfect in this area and yet it's one that resonates with me as I, as I try to 
really connect with the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. And I love Foster outlines 10 things, 10 actions that can help us in our struggle with managing life and truly finding in this way of Jesus, this following of Jesus, understanding that easy yoke and the simplicity of, of what is most important. He outlines 10 different actions. The first one is to buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. Buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. For me, that's not a problem. I, 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 um, I don't, I've never gotten really caught up in, in status and <laughs> I, I'm actually really uh, bad in some ways because then I try to be like anti-status. It's a, it's a little bit rebellious and, and hipster and all of that, uh, in, you know, combined. Um, and I'm notoriously anti-Mac, although I will admit I have had an iPod for many years. Probably even that really dates me because now you don't really need a separate iPod if you had an iPhone, but I refuse to transition to a Mac. I know, please don't send me hate email. Just, just, you know, just forgive and uh, let that go. Um, but I, I didn't, from the very beginning, I just thought, man, you're spending all that money on a phone. Um, I don't really want to do that. But for me, that's not been, been a challenge, but I understand the challenge that it does exist. And, and what if we were to just buy something because it, we needed it rather than, rather than a status. What if we only bought the things we actually needed rather than things that set us up to, uh, uh, to appear as if we had, as if we were one of the crowd or as if we had more money or more prestige or power than we actually do. Now, again, I am not free from this because I am sure there are certain things that I have that, that are more about status. I can't think of any at the moment, but I, I'm sure I do. The second thing he talks about is rejecting anything that is producing an addiction in you. Now, I will confess right from the very, very get-go that there are several addictions, uh, coffee being one, which is, is, uh, is hard. I've tried at various times to go off it, and I've been so proud of myself for going off it for a certain length of time that I've rewarded myself with coffee. I mean, isn't that a natural response but there are uh, there are actually real uh, serious addictions shopping is an addiction um, uh, for some people tv and movies is an escape is an addiction for some people uh, probably for all of us for many of us food is an addiction um, and so rejecting and this is where fasting not just in fasting food but doing fasts, like media fasts, social media fasts, um, coffee fasts, I know, even coffee fasts, uh, taking a break from those things for a certain amount of time actually helps to bring us into perspective. And it, and specifically setting aside that time to say, I am not going to I'm not going to do this for a set amount of time because I want to devote this time to allow, um, to allow the Holy Spirit to do a transforming work in me, to, to, let, to let this time be a time of being set apart for growth. 
The third thing that Foster talks about is developing a habit of giving things away. Developing a habit of giving things away. I, um, I, I, the, one of one area that I've I've loved giving things away and yet regretted at the same time only because I've needed them again. I love. I I, I used to, you know, people would say something and I'd be like, I have a book for that. I have a book. Let me get that book for you. Um, and so I would, you know, just kind of give books away and then it'd be like, wait, where's that book that I needed for a particular class? Um, develop a habit of giving things away. Allow things to be so that, that you're not attached to them, that you would give it to anybody who needs it. Somebody needs to borrow your car and you're willing to let them, 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 um, borrow your car or they need a pair of clothes or, or you're at a point where something was once useful for you, useful for you and you are willing then uh, you don't need it anymore but somebody else needs it and so you're willing to to give that away um, that your life becomes about not holding on to things and this is uh, we live in a day and age of, of hoarders, um, and I definitely have have that that not 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 to any extreme, but that is that is something that I struggle with, wanting to to kind of hold on to things, worried about you know letting them go or just just having stuff, but being able to actually give it away. You don't need it, you don't use it, and. What if you were to give it to somebody who does and get in the habit of it? The fourth thing Foster says is, is to refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. That's, that's some nice prose right there, isn't it? Refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. You know, this book is, is decades old. And yet, and it feels like this is a, a harder thing every year. Every year this gets harder. How do we not become propagandized by people who want to sell us the latest and greatest fad, the, the best new uh, cell phone or iPhone or computer or tablet or TV or whatever car? I mean, we gadgets are our thing today. How can you refuse? This is tough. But maybe setting something in place that says, um, I'm not going to buy the, the latest cell phone. I've, I've, tried to, I've tried to do that, where even though I could get an upgrade on a, on a new phone, that I wait until it actually will not work anymore. It, it, it's cracked and broken, and I can't get any type of cell uh, coverage out of it partly because I don't want to spend the money but the other part just so that I don't get caught up in it that I, I will wait and and not get the latest and greatest uh, device because it's so tempting the fifth thing that Foster says is to learn to enjoy things without owning them boy that is a hard one learn to enjoy things without owning them and I think that can tie in with number three, develop a habit of giving things away. Can I enjoy this thing for now? And even while it's still in really good condition, can I give it away to somebody else? Can I, can I, can I 
really enjoy things even if they're not my own? Or do I have to own and possess and control things? Learn to enjoy things without owning them. The sixth thing that Foster talks about is to develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. This is speaking to all nature level nature lovers. I love nature. I love trees and and rivers and streams and and uh, I love the beauty of it. And being out there in nature, in the simplicity of it, for me it certainly does. I when I'm out in nature, there is a pull. It's like something is pulling me towards being present, putting the phone and whatever else away and just being present. And in that truly appreciating the creator who created that, I feel closer to God when I am out in nature. The seventh thing that Foster talks about is, he says, look with a healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later, schemes. And again, this book is a few decades old. This is so much more, even more so important and yet even more so difficult. Look with a healthy skepticism at all buy now, pay later schemes. This next one is one that I have, uh, again, really appreciated and I feel like it is a discipline in and of itself. And number eight is obey Jesus's instruction about plain, honest speech. And he, he cites Matthew 5, 37. Obey Jesus's instruction about plain, honest speech. Dallas Willard talks about this as well in, in the simplicity of our words, in the simplicity of our communication. It's really hard to to not over-explain, defend yourself, make sure that you're understood, make sure that people don't misunderstand, make sure that people know exactly where you're coming from, especially if you're a talker. You, you need to tell everything all the time, always communicating. But there's something here. Words are powerful and we use our words to control our image, to, to control others, to, uh, we may, I'm more than likely we don't think of it that way, but our words are, our, our communication is a way for us to really express not only ourselves, but to connect with others. And again, to, to get others to understand us or to do what we want. Think of all the powerful people over the years who have been great orators or communicators in some way and the, the power that their words have had. And there is a simplicity, a surrender in, in not over explaining and not using complicated words and not trying to twist people up and not trying to manipulate them and not trying to uh, control or get something out of them. Dallas Willard talks about the discipline of not having the last word. The discipline of not having the last word. And I love that. 
I think that's what what Jesus is saying to a certain extent here, and we see this in the book of James, where uh, James says, you know, let your yes be yes and your no, no. I just communicate. You, you don't you don't need to go on and on and on. Just just be clear, be concise. For somebody who is I'm arguing with, and I'm I'm and and let's be honest, when we're arguing, we want to win. We want to convince people of something. Well, what if I what if I develop the practice of not trying to convince somebody that I was right or convince them that they were wrong? What if I let that go? What if I practice the discipline of not having the last word? What if I let there be a simplicity in my speech? Where instead of saying 50 words, I said 10 words. And those 10 words had much more meaning and connection in them than the 50 that I used to stumble over to try to say something. Words at times are often used to fill silence, which we don't like. Obey Jesus' instruction about plain, honest speech. Employing the discipline of not having the last word. Number nine is reject anything that breeds the oppression of others. And I love this. And I, I, this is one, again, in the Western world we struggle with because we have so much so many goods, so many cheap goods, cheap by meaning affordable, and we really can have anything we want at any time. And although we are becoming more and more aware of uh, human trafficking, uh, sweatshops, indentured servitude, those types of things, we're not enough aware and we are still not doing enough. Can I really, really not use or buy anything that I know comes from something that oppresses others? Is that really possible? I know some people do live like that. That for them, that is a true spiritual discipline. The practice of, uh, of simplicity in, in expressing my love for others, I will not buy into anything or take anything that breeds the oppression of others. Lastly, Foster says, shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Shun anything that distracts you from seeking first the kingdom of God. Simplicity. What would it look like for us to practice simplicity? Which ones resonate with you the most? How in this practice of simplicity, how does this reflect you taking Jesus's simple yoke upon you of denial and surrender 
to Jesus and God's kingdom and what he's doing? And how might we engage in it in this Christmas season? Again, no guilt, no condemnation, no conviction here. We all struggle when it comes to holidays and just life. But what would it look like for us to practice simplicity as we approach this season? What would it look like for us to embrace fully the season itself and the reason for it and fully be embracing the message of the gospel and yet practicing simplicity. Well, thanks for listening to this episode, episode 20 of the Nefesh podcast on simplicity and really its impact on our soul as our soul continues to grow into holistic spiritual formation as we embrace a life of surrender to Jesus. It, it's, it's simple and yet it's complex. It's easy and yet it's the hardest thing we will ever do and yet the best decision we will ever make. And in some ways, the easiest. Uh, I know that's a contradiction in terms. Don't overthink, right? Don't overthink. Uh, and embrace, embrace a life, a life of simplicity. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.